Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup, previously and hopefully still the only podcast on the internet that compares the politics and the football of the teams and nations playing in this year's Euro 2020. My name's Dominic Kacher and I know almost nothing about anything, but with me, as always, the expert on football and just life in general, man, is David Bryan. There was a series of misstatements you you just made. Which I one? Think, Which one? Uh, well, first of all, you know an awful lot about an awful lot of things, and then secondly, mm. I like football, but I wouldn't say I'm anything like an expert. I think we need to manage expectations here. I know this isn't our first episode of Who Watches the World Cup, so people who've listened to previous episodes might be like, I mean, he does a bit, but you know, he's, I don't he, know. He's also I don't know, Dave. I don't know. The other day, you came round to my house and we watched some football, didn't we? We watched the last day of the Premier House. League, yeah. Yes, and my brother was there watching. And after, after you left, Harvey went, oh, Dave knows his football. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's... And, and trust me, and knowing my brother as I do, that's a fucking compliment. Well, I was going to say, not knowing your brother as well as, as I would like, but from what I do know about him, I'm quite flattered. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good one. So that's you, to me, you're an expert, at least in comparison to me. I'm happy to fulfill fulfill that role for the sake of uh, awful commentary. <laughs> yes. Well, today on when this episode is released, it's the 11th of June, 2021, the day we've all been waiting for because Euro 2020 is about to kick off a year late. Now it's kind of like it's kind of like when you're meeting. Uh, a, a distant family member and you're there at the restaurant and you're like, I'm so hungry. When are they going to get here? And they're like, Oh, we'll be there soon. We'll be there soon. And one year later they arrive and you can finally eat your dinner. The anticipation of that meal is so great, but you're also really frustrated. I just wanted the football a year ago, but how are you feeling about it, Dave? Are you psyched? I'm, I'm famished. I'm starving. Nice. I cannot, nice. I can't wait to tuck in. That's great. So this Friday, the first game of the Euros is going to kick off. Who's playing? Who's opening this tournament? And what do you think is going to happen? The first game of the tournament. Is it, is it, this is, um, we talked before about where this is being hosted, quote unquote. Like yeah. major tournaments are usually hosted in one or maybe two countries. Um, but this has been hosted all across, all across Europe. So the opening game of a tournament is usually the host versus somebody else but um one of the hosts italy is playing against turkey on friday evening in rome and this is a group a match right today we're, we're really zooming in on group a so who who's making up group a here we've got italy we've got turkey and we've got wales and we've got switzerland okay and wales and switzerland i guess are playing tomorrow Right, they're playing on the Saturday. They are playing on Saturday, yeah, two o'clock in Baku. That h- hilarious journey that Wales have to make all the way to ruddy Baku. Baku, Azerbaijan, baby, baby doll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is, again, I know we mentioned it before, but I'm bringing it up every time we talk about Group A. Wales and Switzerland having to fly to Baku, Azerbaijan for no reason other than the Azerbaijani government bribed whichever UEFA official was necessary for them to be the host <laughs> is hilarious. Which, whoever was closest, whichever yeah, of the corrupt, yeah. bribable UEFA officials was nearby. 
Like, it's not even like Russia is going to play in Baku, Azerbaijan. That would make some sense because they're not, they're reasonably close. Yeah. But like Wales, it's, it's oh, the only thing that could be worse was if Iceland were in the tournament and they had to fly to Baku, Azerbaijan. I'm just looking at it now. So if you were to drive from Wales to Azerbaijan, that's yeah. 3,385 miles, a 61 hour drive. Yeah. Um, that's far. It's a pretty long way to go for a game of football that has almost no consequence. But we're not, we're not going to talk about Baku Azerbaijan right now. That's just a little bit of a, a, a dipping the toe into, uh, into probably bribery that, that, that took place. <laughs> you love a bit of bribery. I, I do love bribery. Do you know how much I love bribery, Dave? How much? We're going to talk about bribery a lot when we get into the uh, into the politics of Italy and Turkey a little bit later on in the episode. Uh-huh. I'm just I'm teasing. I'm teasing you there. Colour me teased. Uh, but before then, before we've got foreplay to do, and the foreplay is a football. So what is going on with this group and this first match, especially Italy and Turkey? What is going on? Dom asks. I think what's going what's going on between uh, Italy and Turkey will inevitably inevitably be, um, which of these two teams finishes top of the group. Um, to my mind, they're the two strongest teams coming in to Group A, um, and Wales or Switzerland getting out of the group, I think, would be a a, a pleasing upset, but um, but quite unlikely. Just taking into account the uh, the routes. Uh, the the camp the qualifying campaigns of of Italy and Turkey I think it's yeah hard hard to see um, both of those not going through. Is the Italian team still good? I guess because we've seen with countries like Germany and well what we expected from Portugal where and Spain I guess to a certain extent they just aged out of their golden generation. And I remember at one of the previous tournaments, maybe it was even the last Euros, I think England were playing Italy. And we were like, oh yeah, Italy are good, but their best player, who may even have been Perlo, I can't remember who it was, they were like, yeah, he's he's great, but he's also 50 years old. <laughs> so, you know, we'll probably be all right. And I'm pretty sure we got knocked out. But Yeah, we, um, we like, lost on, um, was it on penalties? Um, was that at the year? Yeah, that was at... One of the Euros, I can't, I can't remember which one. Was it the last one? Remember Penenka, uh, Pirlo's Penenka against Joe Hart in the, the penalty shootout, yeah. But Pirlo's one of those players who, for most of his career, he might as well have been 50 because he didn't run much. He was just this genius of a footballer who could be where he needed to be. He was a bit like Paul Scholes, where he just was in the right place at the right time, could just would get the lay of the land, see the whole pitch in front of him, and just ping passes left and right, dictate the tempo of a game, and just kind of lead by example. And he, yeah, he was never one to run around, get stuck in. He was never a box to box guy, but he could he could be everywhere that he needed to be and put the ball exactly where he wanted it to be. Genius. Man. Do the do the Italians have anybody like that now, or like who who is the the new generation of Italian footballers? Because when I look at the Premier League, uh. I don't really see any Italians popping up these days. It's like Belgians, yeah, sure. French, oh my goodness. 
even like South Americans, there's more South Americans than you've ever seen in bloody South America playing in Manchester these days. But like Italians, uh, is it a similar situation where they just don't leave Italy like like English players don't? Or is the this crop of Italian players like, eh, yeah, they're fine, but you know. Uh, that's interesting that you've, you've noticed that actually, because I think it, it has been a bit of a shift in that uh, there are very few Italian players playing in the Premier League. I think the two that I can see in the Italian squad both play for Chelsea, Emerson, the left-back, and Jorginho, the central midfielder. But yeah, the rest of them are largely largely home-based. I think nearly every other player I'm looking at here still uh, plays in Roma, apart from a couple who play for PSG, uh, Florenzi and Marco Verratti uh, play for, for PSG, but everyone else is, yeah, is, is Italian-based. And I think that will, if anything, help uh, their, their campaign this time around, being that they're all... So probably quite close-knit. I see that they have a goalkeeper. Their goalkeeper's called Dormammu. Is there going to be an advantage <laughs> by having uh, an ethereal being from the dark dimension with uh, immeasurable powers? I, like, Turkey aren't going to be able to get Doctor Strange onto the pitch. So what do you think they... No, no, this, this is me just going off on, on nonsense. <laughs> nonsense around now like even their strikers called him mobile like how are like how can they expect to compete when their striker can't even move <laughs> these are some great observations these are the scathing critiques of football that yeah. you'll get on who watches the, well, the, the goalkeeper you mentioned Gianluigi Donnarumma he's probably one of their stars um, he, okay. he came through at, at AC Milan when I think he made his debut when he was like 16 and he's been their number one choice goalie ever since. Um, I think his contract actually runs out this summer, and which is a big mistake <laughs> if you're a Milan, that you had brought up this young chap from, from childhood. He became Italy once Gianluigi Buffon finally retired. Um, he becomes your, the number one Italian goalkeeper and then he's allowed to leave for free when he, you could get 20 million for him, I would say, easy. Um but but yeah, he's, he's 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 super young as well. He's still young. I think he's only in his early twenties. So yeah, yeah, but he's um yeah he's a, already a very experienced top top flight goalkeeper. Um, Chiro Mobile, yeah. Um, he I remember him uh, at the last Euros, um, when we needed I think we needed Italy to beat somebody else or is that a World Cup? I can't remember. All I remember is that back when I tweeted, I tweeted that I was really pissed off that Italy when they needed we needed Italy to score a goal. And Italy brought on Chiro Mobile, who had done fuck all the whole tournament and was no, never likely to score a goal. And he came on and did nothing. And I was really angry. And I can't remember what tournament that was. So I don't like Chiro Mobile, um, even though he's had a pretty good season from what I've heard um, in Serie A for Lazio. Um, Lorenzo Insigne from Napoli's had another good season. So they've got a couple of good experienced attacking players. But um, there isn't a new Pirlo in this squad. Mm. I wouldn't say that they've got, I think they've got a good um, like central midfield base. If it was me, I'd be playing Jorginho from Chelsea and Marco Verratti at PSG central, uh, central midfielders. They're, they're very good cultured, good on the ball can pass really well, but it's always a danger of trying to compare the new crop to the previous, especially if they had a golden generation, like, like Italy did have when they won the world cup um, uh, this century. Um, and then their, their defense seems to be a little aged. They've still got Leonardo Bonucci and Giorgio Chiellini um, from Juve, and they're well into their 30s now, and they've been stalwarts for a long, long time. So um, as much as they're still quality, I think um, 
this is a maybe their last their last hurrah at a major a major tournament. But I will I confess I don't know I've not followed Serie A or Italian football much this year. Um, other than knowing that Inter Milan won won the Serie A for the first time in a while under uh, Antonio Conte and he immediately left, <laughs> which was which was bizarre. Um, but their their qualification was really kind of outstanding. So, and I think they were the only team besides Belgium who won all ten of their qualifying games. Uh, only conceded four goals in ten games. Um, so they're definitely coming into this, coming into this on a, on a on a wave of strength. Even though their group did contain Liechtenstein and Armenia. I mean that's that's going pretty heavily in your favour in that case. <laughs> but like when when we did the last who watches the World Cup for the World Cup. One of the major absences that we noted back then was, hey, Italy aren't even in the World Cup. Italy weren't in the World Cup, right? And that's like, I'm just going to say it again, Dave. In 2018, Italy, the country of Italy, the footballing powerhouse, didn't even <laughs> didn't even bloody make it. Yeah. Whereas World this Cup time, thirty some teams, not even like a little narrow tournament like the Euros. Yeah, and so we saw yeah all kinds of amazing weird stuff happened in in that last World Cup. But with this one, like, is the lack of a superstar like a Perlo or something at this one, meaning that they've got to think more about the team, if that makes sense, where they can't say, oh, we're going to put everything's based around what Perlo wants to do. Like, is it Roberto Mancini is the manager of Italy now? He is, right? yeah. Premier League winning manager for Man- with Man City back in the day. Their first he- Premier League title, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, so like now he's actually got to build a team that works rather than going, ah, yeah, 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 your, your Cristiano Ronaldo is going to dictate what the team does. Instead, their superstar, you know, if they're, for lack of a better word, their most influential player is their goalkeeper. So is it, you know, is it the case of building a solid team, like going from scratch to have not even qualified to the World Cup for having you know, one of the best qualifying runs for the Euros. Yeah, I think that's definitely got to have been an inspiration. When, a, like, As you've said, when a country, or sorry, when a footballing nation as big as Italy doesn't make it to a tournament, that's pause for, we need to change something. And I think um, you were right about um, a generation that's kind of aged out. Um, they were at that, that, that phase where a lot of their best players were getting older and whatever happened in that qualification campaign um it yeah that, it wasn't uh, anything that could be repeated so they needed to rebuild and see i think that's why a lot of um a lot of italian the the, the italian squad is based in italy that they've really, i think they're really invested in trying to rebuild italian football and um holland aren't quite the same they're similar in that they didn't qualify for the world cup but come into this tournament quite strong and it looks like they have a really good squad and they've had to do a little bit of a rebuild but dutch football is not um, uh, it's not as strong as the Serie A, so most of their players, like you said about Belgium, will go and play in other countries. But um, yeah, Italy for uh, somehow have really uh, galvanised under Mancini, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say they're. Um, I expect them to definitely go through to the knockout stages and probably top the group, depending on if they beat Turkey in the first game. Well, that is the perfect transition over to Turkey then. Turkey seemed to be going into this, as you said, not necessarily favourites for the group, but with some expectation behind it. 
right? Like, they're, they're in a group with, with Switzerland, who are, like, a decent European side, right? Like, Switzerland, we're not talking about Armenia, as you we were saying earlier on. Like, Switzerland are a decent side, and Wales have a bunch of Premier League players in there. So, what is it about this Turkish team that, you know, that carries that weight with them? Again, I look at the qualification as a, as a big as a big clue, and they qualified second in their group behind France, and probably or would have at least finished on joint points with France if they hadn't had a bit of a surprise loss to Iceland. I think, uh, I think they drew with Iceland and lost to Iceland um, away, um, but they beat France once and drew with them in in Paris. So, um, if they hadn't have had that little blip against Iceland, they may have well have topped the group and their their manager now is um, the same manager they've had before who actually took them all the way to the semi-finals of the world cup in 2002 right and um, so he's got some great pedigree and i think he, he's probably very highly thought of and respected in turkey um but they in terms of their squad they may be going through a great um kind of resurgence of a i don't want to say a golden generation already because they haven't really shown that on the world stage in in tournament football but I think they're definitely um, a side that, especially Italy in the first game, but any time the team that comes up against them in the knockout rounds would be a little bit wary of. They have, they have a strong strong um, pool of, of players these days. And these are players who are in like the Premier League and the Bundesliga and like these these top tier. It's not like with Wales, for example, we were saying, just to get a little plug in, that uh, we're very excited because the day before the world, uh, the Euro final on the 11th of July, the, on the 10th of July, Bath City, the best football team in the world, <laughs> in, in at least the Vanarama South, are doing uh, their opening friendly, the first game since January, and it's a huge match because it's against Cardiff City, who are leagues, literally, literal leagues above Bath City. It's like a big, a big team coming from Cardiff down to this non-league team for an opening friendly. It's like a, it's a great, a great chance for, to see some, to see some football uh, and to celebrate the, hopefully, the world being in, the, the pandemic being in a better place. And I was saying, oh, Cardiff City are coming. And you said, oh, we'll see some of the Welsh internationals. We'll be well, playing I don't expect that they'll be there because they would have been at the Euros. But there's a couple of players who play have played uh, play for Cardiff who are um, yeah in the Welsh squad. Yeah, which means like the the Cardiff City big team, no doubt. But they're not in the Premier League, right? They're they're in the Championship. So Wales are bringing in players like Gareth Bale, of course, like in famous international player but who hasn't played that much in Madrid in recent years, didn't play that much at Spurs. Then they're bringing in players from the Championship rather than the Premier League. With this Turkey team, is it like people who have just won the FA Cup and, and players like that who are stepping in to like bring with momentum, Championship momentum to bring with them? Well, yeah, I think you're, you're thinking of Soyuncu, the centre-half, aren't you, who um, yeah, won the FA Cup with Leicester this year. Um, I think there's a, there's a great... Um, spread of um, where the Turkish players are based. Uh, so you, you, there aren't many Premier League players, in fact. They, you have Soyuncu from Leicester and um, Okey Kuslu from West Brom, who's just been relegated, but he was one of their better players, I thought. Quite, um, I think he's a quite an important player for the, the Turkish national side in midfield. But you have a few players, I think three or four players, who um, won 
uh, Ligue 1 in France with Lille this year. Um, and a, a and lot that's, of the, that's a big deal. That, that is a like, big deal, yeah. Especially when you look at the French team and most of them play at like PSG. Yeah. Right. And it's like the French team actually, like Mbappe didn't win this year. And so he's going into the Euros having not won this year. And <laughs> Turkey are going in with players who did win this year. Yeah. And that's got to be like a buzz. That's right? got to be a huge buzz for those for those Lille players. Yeah. And um, the only other uh, Premier League player that I can see is uh, Ozan Kobak, uh, Kabak, who um, Liverpool signed when Virgil van Dijk got injured. And, you know, that's a hard position. Like he, he was never a superstar or like a, a top um, a top target, I think, for anyone. But... When Liverpool were desperate, they got him in and he filled a gap. But ended that, but then um, Liverpool ended up playing their young, their young uh, youngsters at centre halves instead. So he's got a bit of experience. But then yeah, you've got players who play for Juventus in Italy. You've got um, players who play for. Uh, you've got um, I can never pronounce his name. Hakan Hakan who plays for AC Milan. He's been there for a number of years and he's a talented player. And. Um, uh, Brent, uh, Brentford have got a player represented in the team as well. They've just been promoted from the Championship. They'll be in the Premier League next year, which is really exciting. Um, but And then the players that are still based in Turkey play for the big boys. They play for Fenerbahce. Mm-hmm. They uh, play for Galatasaray. You've got the, the Istanbul Bashak Shehir, or however the hell pronounce that team. <laughs> like these are, they're playing. They're playing in big teams, and um, yeah, they they are spread out, but they all seem to be playing at a pretty high level wherever they are. There's no one who's playing for for, for minnows. Um, well, you got Fortuna Dusseldorf in Germany and Gahafe from Spain. Now they aren't exactly big, um, big teams. But yeah, on the on the on the whole, I think their their team play at a high level all all year round. Yeah, yeah. As we go through um, the rest of the teams and we go into the politics, I'm just going to throw this out here now. Names are going to be mispronounced. <laughs> yeah. All right, you just, please just 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 go with it. And uh, apologies, apologies in advance. So this is the opening game with the Euros. As you are saying, it's kind of like a, a battle for first and second place in the group. Probably. Probably. Probably, I'd say. Yeah. That's, that's Dave's, yeah. Dave's uh, two Dave's cents. Dave's prediction. Yeah. How do you reckon it's going to turn out? What's your... If you were going to put, put something down on, on this match, who do you reckon's got it? The Turkey-Italy match. Um, mm. I reckon... What's the matchup looking like? I reckon it's going to be a draw. Okay. I think so. That you reckon it's it's that close that these teams are so equally weighted at this point. I think it's hard to yeah, it's hard to pick between them. Um, it's well, at least it's not obvious which team is better right now. Mm-hmm. And it's the first match of the tournament. A lot of anticipation, a lot of pressure, a lot of eyes are on them. And I can't think of many examples of when the opening game of the tournament was a classic, except for the South Africa World Cup where South Africa won the opening game of the tournament and uh, there was some wonder goal, some left-footed um, pile driver from outside the box <laughs> won the game and I was so excited for South Africa. But I think it being a Euros and it being post... or And still um, we're still going through the pandemic and it's all a bit weird and people are travelling all over the place. By prediction, a draw, hopefully with some goals, maybe a 2-2, but I think it might be a cagier than that one or something like that. See, I reckon, using this to transition into the into Baku, Azerbaijan, I reckon the Italians have got this, specifically because it's in Rome. And the, the benefit of being in Rome, normally the home field advantage is, is obviously big, but the home field advantage this year 
is like, oh yeah, we didn't have to quarantine for two weeks and we didn't have to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We were able to reasonably live our usual lives, whereas the Turkish team have have so many rules put on them. Like if we, if we look at Switzerland v. Wales in Baku, Azerbaijan, like no team has an advantage there. Maybe Switzerland has the advantage because they spent 45 minutes less on the plane <laughs> on the flight there, but like that's pretty much that's pretty much it. But what how do you reckon those teams shape out? Switzerland and Wales. I'm like it's I'm I'm finding myself thinking that the sensible money is that Switzerland are the better team. Because mm, we spoke about Switzerland quite a lot in the last World Cup. We did, yeah, yeah, and um, again, their their qualification was pretty strong, whereas Wales kind of scraped scraped through, and that the depth of their squad is not all that impressive. So they have a good, say, core eleven to fifteen players, but if you start to get injuries or people start to get tired, I I worry for Wales. But then I kind of I want them to produce the same magic they produced in twenty sixteen, but then that was a magical experience and a magical moment that. I can't see them doing it again. My heart is with them, but like, like Switzerland topped their qualification group, which which featured Denmark and the Republic of Ireland, um, which wasn't um, they didn't run away with it by any means. They only got top uh, top place by a point over Denmark, um, but they're just I think it's a more solid team, uh, more strength and depth, more. Uh, whilst Wales have the advantage of being a very tight knit group. Um, I think I think Wales will have to play every game. Every game might have to be their best game in order to to get results. Um, they've had they've had trouble scoring goals throughout qualification. Um, so yeah, I just I, I can't see it happening. I know in the, in our preview episode I said I'd love Wales to win it, but um, if I'm gonna lean towards uh, my heart instead of my head my head has a little bit more influence and says, maybe Scotland, if you're going to go for a British team that isn't England, maybe Scotland actually right. have a better shout with a better, with a better squad. But I don't, um, yeah, I've, in my, my wall chart predictor, I've put Wales to finish third in the group, but that's, that's hope more than expectation. Okay. Well, if we're looking at Switzerland, do we say like the players we spoke about a lot in the, uh, in the previous one, we spoke a lot about Shakiri. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing he's still like, I, I, I'm not sure if he's their captain. I think he might be, but Shakiri is still like Switzerland, Switzerland's biggest player. Their, their version of Gareth Bale, I suppose. I, I think he's their, what the, you might say his talis, their talisman. Their talisman. In a yeah. tight, in a tight game. Um, because Switzerland, Switzerland play very organized and very compact, um, uh, but they kind of all hope that he can produce a bit of magic if they really need it. Um, everyone, I think, will do their jobs really well and they'll be disciplined and they'll hope that he can do a couple of jinks or score a goal from outside the box. Or do you remember his um, overhead kick from 18, 20 yards in the last Euros? Oh, yeah. Like it, so he's a very talented player who I don't think has really ever um, kind of shown his best except for in spurts like like that. I think he was at Bayern Munich at one point before he came to Stoke City in the Premier League. Um, then he's become a bit part player at Liverpool and I wouldn't be surprised if he moves on to try and get more football. But um, And that, that might actually be a, at a disadvantage that he hasn't played much this year when he's kind of looked at to to produce some, some magic for them. Well, here's, here's a little thing for you about his time at Liverpool. In the summer of 2020, he had a... Uh, he had a 
hair transplant using the same German specialist as Jurgen Klopp. Now, I didn't know that Jurgen Klopp had a hair transplant, which goes to show how good that German specialist is. I'm not <laughs> surprised the Shakiri said to Klopp. So, uh, which which guy? Which guy are you using for the? Uh, which guy are you using? And he's like, here's the here's the fucking number of my hair guy. And then he's off. If I were Shakiri, I'd be staying for another season at Liverpool just to say thanks for the hair, buddy. <laughs> super super sub me. Don't even worry about it. Thanks for the hair. Which is interesting, because now we can tie it into Turkey by saying, Turkey, other European destination for hair transplants. Lots of people flying to Turkey for hair transplants these days. How do I know so much? Not going to go into it. I think you should keep that, play that close to your chest. <laughs> but I am going to get in touch with Jürgen Klopp. <laughs> yeah. See if you can get the, the number of that German... That yeah, German yeah, guy. yeah. Uh, actually, I'm going to tweet Shakiri. So, uh, which German... I think I probably don't have enough money. I think, yeah. I'd yeah, rather go right. Pat- Patrick Stewart than lose my house to get a hair transplant. Yeah, well, you can maybe, maybe try and track down Wayne Rooney's hair transplant guy. Yeah. Maybe that's uh, you know, closer to home. I, yeah. And it, I was saying this the other day. The one identity group that has not had a political movement attached behind it yet is bold men. <laughs> because one third of men suffer from some form of... Uh, of hair loss, right throughout their career, throughout their lives. Well, one third of men will will uh, get male pattern baldness or whatever they call it, and every time one third of these men are essentially humiliated by popular culture, for no reason other than a genetic thing that they are born with, and yet there is nothing about there is no like bald men's union. We want better cultural representation for bold men. We've never had a bold prime minister, blah, 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 whatever. Like this kind of thing. And it's an untapped market, Dave. Is the cultural unity of bold men. Um, that, I mean, I think you might be onto something there. Because it could also be multicultural. Like, yeah. This is just, the only, the only um, prerequisites are... You have to be a man, which is 50% of people, and you yeah. have to be bald, which is one third of that 50% of people. So that's yeah. quite a big... It's a huge group. It's big, a substantial group, yeah. group. Yeah. And it's like saying, we don't want to have to be so humiliated by culture that we have to go to hair transplant people. And then when you do go to a hair transplant pe- person, people are like, oh, you went to a hair transplant person. You can't win. Either you get laughed at for being bald, or you get laughed at for wanting to have hair, which people humiliated you for anyway. If you can't win. You're right. And I, um, I have not been to the gym many times in my life, I'll admit. <laughs> I, I went mostly through, through rehab, like doctor-ordered rehabilitation after I had mm. knee surgeries. But whenever I saw someone who was um, clearly overweight or unfit in the gym, you would see some sort of fitties looking at them uh, degradingly and I found yes. that really unfair because when yeah. I saw someone I could, if you see someone um, overweight who's jogging out on the street I go fucking good for you because yes. that must be really hard yeah. for you to make that decision to go I'm going to better myself I'm not pleased with with this and to get from where I am to where I want to be is going to be really hard and I'm going to look uh, I, I have to do it in a way that is I am opening myself up yeah, you have to make right. you're very yeah. vulnerable in that. In you that have to place. become vulnerable, yeah, yeah, in order to do it. To have yeah, to yeah, do, yeah, do it, yeah. and it, yeah, to have the the strength of character to to go through that, I really admire. And like, mm. I I have got a little bit of a a pandemic podge going on, 
and it's minimal it's nothing and I already feel a bit bad about it and I'm trying to think about when I can go and start exercising and stuff but even then I'm like yeah but can I be bothered whereas yeah, yeah whereas yeah, uh, yeah, people yeah, who yeah. have a uh, are very in, uh, insecure about their hair or about <laughs> their bodies to actually have the, the 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 wherewithal and the commitment to to go through with it good for you because life is already hard enough and if you don't like yourself it's only going to be harder Yes, yeah, and that's the exact reason that I don't ever exercise outside, right? Like, we, we have a treadmill in the house that my, in, that my parents bought. Um, but I only use that when there is nobody else in the house because I cannot exercise around other people. I can't do it. Like, I physically, I cannot open myself up to the vulnerable state of people seeing me exercise i just can't do it oh really like if if we went outside and played football and, and kicked a football around that would be fine or i could i could run on a treadmill next to somebody else but i could never go to a gym and exercise where other people were watching i could never just put on some jogging shoes and just go for a jog on the road like no i just, just couldn't couldn't do it i'm really uh, sad to hear that because um you're going to be coming to stay with me for a week during the euros and i was really hoping that you'd be like i'm just gonna go for a run and i'd be like yeah yeah i'll come for a run <laughs> and i would start to you know i would i needed i need you to help me get uh you know get moving but that's fine well let's let's, let's get the ball sports out let, let, let's buy yeah let's buy a, a football an american football and a basketball and each day we'll just go out and do a different ball sport for for 30 minutes that sounds perfect yeah yeah Balls. This is good. This is this is this is yeah. Balls. David balls balls boys. <laughs> this is a, a wonderful aside. And the <laughs> the best thing about having gone on this kind of, of segue is that it allows me to seamlessly transition into politics. Woo. We're going from from the politics of being a man who's losing his hair, which I haven't quite got to yet, but I know I I could see my dad, I could see my granddad, and that I still have hair. I know what's coming, Dave. You, you right. might have a decade, or at least, before it starts to happen, though. Yeah, well, that's why you've got to be advanced. You've got to get in touch with Shakiri. You're like, <laughs> Shakiri, who's your hair guy? I'm going to need it in 10 years' time. And then you become a professional footballer at 30 years of age and uh, get that sweet, sweet Liverpool cash. Shakiri, Shakiri. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you get in contact with him. You just walk outside and shout, Shakiri, Shakiri, and he comes running. Yeah, and he's going to be like, oh, your hips don't lie. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a little bit saucy, is that, Jordan? Yeah, he is. So, let's transition over to the politics side, because as I teased you with a little bit earlier on, Italy and Turkey are absolutely nuts right now. <laughs> and I had the most fun, just like, I knew, I knew bits, but I didn't really know enough to sit down and and do this so i like delved into some research and found stuff like recent stuff that i was like oh my god like really you're gonna love it you're gonna you're gonna have a great time pick a country italy or turkey i'll let you i'll let you i'll let you choose uh turkey please dominic oh great choice dave great choice (laughs) So I'm going to start off, this is like, this is news, political news, uh, kind of that's been coming up in within the last month. And what we like to do with Who Watches the World Cup is say, how will the politics of these countries affect them within the World Cup? 
right? Oh, so within the Euros in this case, like, will they be carrying baggage with them? Will what's happening at home affect them on the international stage? And in this case, I've got no idea, but I love it. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll let you decide how much you think is, is going to affect it's going to affect Turkey. So, okay. Uh, as we've spoken about uh, a few times in the past, the politics of the last 15 to 20 years, well, let's say the last 15 years, has been dominated by trying to combat uh, the rise of right-wing nationalistic politics, right? Where we've seen countries like America choosing people like Trump, and we've seen, uh, in, even in the UK with Brexit and a move towards people like Boris Johnson, nationalism and uh, the right wing has become increasingly powerful and turkey is one of those countries uh, under under president erdogan that have ended up embracing that full on like turkey has kind of become infamous for a which a barometer of which way is the world going here because turkey was pretty close at one point to trying to gain entry into the eu whereas erdogan himself as the the, the to, uh, the president of Turkey is uh, Turkey for Turkish people, and the the young Tur- the young Turks that I know um, of, like of our generation, uh, tend to not favor Erdogan in a lot of ways. It's again, I I don't want to speak for, for for Turkish voters, but it seems to be reasonably similar to when I was living in Russia and in Moscow. The, the Russians in Moscow were like, nah, we don't like Putin. And then you leave Moscow and everyone loves Putin. Uh, and the younger you are in the UK, the more you're like, Boris Johnson. <laughs> but if you're elderly and from Hartlepool, then you you probably like Boris Johnson more than a young person in London. Right. You know what I mean? So Erdogan has been a strong man. He's the leader of the, the AKP party in, in Turkey. And he's being challenged more by protests within the country than he actually has by any other party within Turkey itself. Uh, he's been, like, his political... He hasn't been challenged on the political stage until, Dave, this month, Dave, I'm waving my hands because it's so crazy and exciting. I'm go- Actually, I'm going to take you back in time a little bit, and I'm going to introduce you to a man whose name I'm inevitably going to pronounce, uh, mispronounce. So just Turkish people, I apologise. Uh, Sadat Piker, 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 I'm going to call him Piker because it's easier. Sadat Piker, again, apologies for the mispronunciation, is now probably the most famous YouTuber in Turkey. Right? Are you intrigued as to how a Turkish YouTuber is threatening the government? I mean, I am, because you look so excited to tell me. Okay, what if I told you that before he was a YouTuber... He was one of the country's most notorious gangsters who spent over a decade in Turkish prison for uh, building gangs for murder. No, sorry, he was acquitted on the murder charge. Actually, I should I should throw that out there. Uh, But the two co-defendants that he was he was alongside were sentenced to life in prison. Um, Pika Pika was Jean-Luc Pika. Yeah, he was a pretty renowned gangster in Turkey who has now taken to recording YouTube videos in an attempt to bring down the Turkish government. 
Okay, and he's kind of gone viral. Literally, yes. His videos now have over 55 million views in Turkey. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this gangster and what it is about the things that he's doing, the things that he's saying that are having this impact. So when he was young, he... Uh, he gained prominence, I guess, within crime, if you can call it that, <laughs> um, by with with max fixing, uh, max match fixing. Sorry, like football matches, really, and it was through that kind of um, that kind of sports, uh, like betting and this kind of thing, um, that that was kind of the start of his career. But as with lots of these gangsters in Turkey, like this is a, like this is not a rare occurrence that politics happens to be linked to organized crime. Um, a lot of these gangsters uh, start off but being associated with this far-right ultra-nationalist party. They're called the MHP, or in English it's the, the Nationalist Movement Party. Um, they're like very patriotic, very Eurosceptic. Right. They don't like Europe at all, like extreme, extreme ultra nationalists in the same way that you would think about, I guess, like the old football violence of the uh, of the 1980s in the UK with like your mill walls and whatever. It's like skinheads who beat up immigrants from Pakistan. Right. Those kind of like like thugs, basically. Um, a lot of these Turkish gangsters started off in, in a similar way, being associated with this with the MHP, this this uh, far right party. Um, but this far-right party are aligned with Erdogan's AKP party. They're not the same thing, but it's kind of like, oh, you do a favour for me, we do a favour for you sort of thing. And so you can see how the gangster stuff is already kind of, you know, be kind of working its way in there. Um, so Pika kind of grew in, in prominence through that uh he was uh, he's been arrested a whole bunch of times uh in 2005 he was arrested for uh, a sentence for 14 years on counts of building and leading a criminal organization on robbery forgery two counts of false imprisonment there's like there's there's so, there's so much stuff um uh, he uh, years years before that he fled to romania uh to escape prison but was returned to turkey he returned himself to turkey to face charges of building a criminal empire and he was sentenced to seven years in prison and he was out in eight months right so yeah from your eyes seven <laughs> years to eight months is like that's that's a it's a pretty big is a pretty big thing so how does he end up going basically from a, a, a gangster who's nominally in prison when he was in prison he had a, his own washing machine in in his prison cell and oil paintings and all this kind of stuff, right? It's like it's like when you see like the kingpin in Daredevil or something in prison, you know, yeah, yeah. Or, or like Goodfellas. Like this, is like you know, this is kind of exactly what it's like. Um, how did he turn into Charlie bit my finger? <laughs> right, like, like 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 how did he do it? Well, he get he got out of prison, uh, and in early in twenty twenty, he left Turkey. And he, he kind of fled to, to Montenegro, then to, to the Balkans, to Morocco. And now, supposedly, he's in Dubai. We, he says he's in Dubai, but there's no actual necessary confirmation that he's in Dubai. So he's in Dubai recording these YouTube videos, slandering the Turkish government. From right? a distance. And so, like, from a distance, yes. And now the reason that he's slandering the government is 
because this April, a few months ago, the Turkish authorities raided his house in Istanbul. He's not there. He fled Turkey a year ago. Right. He's in Dubai, he says. But his wife and his daughter are in this house in Istanbul. The police raided it. They, he says they harassed his wife and daughter. So he's going Gangnam style on them. <laughs> Right. He's like he's 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 all he's he's all over it. Um, And this is kind of uh, this is an interesting step for him because because he's always been related with this MHP party, which are connected to Erdogan's party. Like they've been pretty tight knit. Like, yeah, he's sentenced to seven years in prison, but, you know, he's out. He's out in eight months. Right. And so it's like, why does this guy decide to decide to bring them down? Like in 2016, he was at a rally held by like. An anti-government protest, and he told the crowd of mostly academics, "We will let your blood in the streams, and we will shower in your blood." He said to anti-government uh, opponents, some, "That's some biblical shit." Yes, uh, he refers to Erdogan with the Turkish word for brother as well. This is the president of of Turkey, right? So this is a, it's a pretty big step. Like he was pretty, he was alongside them. He was like a supporter of them, and then they went to his house harassed his wife and he's not he's not having it this is like Dave. this is like kaiser soze it is yeah it is like because <laughs> he was also turkish i seem to remember yeah uh, yeah something like that yeah yeah you know when when like rival gangs break into kaiser soze's house and hold his um hold his wife and and ch- yeah. children hostage and he's just like fine he just like bomb blows blows his own family away just to send a yeah. message that he can't be messed with and that is <laughs> same re- that, exactly the same no, that no, it is. It is really. You're you're remarkably close because this is the kind of thing that he's talking about on his YouTube channel, right? He like he says, "Oh yeah, I broke a politician's fingers because they badmouthed Erdogan's wife." Like he's just on his YouTube channel. It's like, yeah, they they insulted the president's wife, so I you know I broke I broke their bones. Like back in the day, under orders or just because he was. Vigilante. Well, this, this this is the thing. This is kind of what what goes along. Like he says in one of. One of his videos, he says that he ordered his brother to murder a Turkish Cypriot journalist, I think, on orders from somebody else in, in the party. And like this is all kind of going through these these links. The party are using gangsters to intimidate, to, you know, to to, to kill and, and all kinds of things. And the, the most prominent person he's gone after is the interior minister, whose name I'm going to, to slaughter again. Uh, is uh, Soliman Soylu. Apologies, Turkish people. Um, so Soylu is the interior minister. He's a member of the AKP party, which is Erdogan's party. Um, in previous years, Soylu kind of came under threat from within his own party. Classic political stuff. You know, oh, we don't like the interior minister. I want to be interior minister. You know, like politi- politicians being politicians. Um, so... Picard, our gangster guy, eh, he took care of the problem for him. Took care of it. Yeah, right. Inference on raised eyebrows. Took care of it. Yeah. Also, Picard is saying in in these videos that that Soylu, the interior minister, provided him with police security when he left prison. He's like, oh, you're out of prison, but you're going to need somebody to keep you safe. So we're going to, you know, we're going to give you police security. Like the, the government actually protected this gangster when he got out of prison. He says that also he tipped, uh, he tipped our gangster off when the police were meant to be coming to arrest him. The, the interior minister said, oh, the police are coming to uh, the police are coming to get you. So just be ready for that. 
And he also says that, that Soylu, the interior minister, was supposed to help him get back into Turkey after a year. Like after, you know, he's, he's gone to Dubai. The interior minister was supposed to help him get back in, but has then like backed off. And is being like, oh, yeah, I know we had an agreement, but uh... and so now he's going after this guy hard. Right. Like all, all of this stuff's coming out. Uh, he's saying, you know, we, we've, we've done favors, we've done bribes, we've broken bones, we've done all of this stuff and we've done it for the government. We've done it for these politicians and Turkey's going bananas about it because Turkey it's actually it's, it's a pretty controlled media environment. Um, the, the the media is is close to the government, and like when I was I was living in Turkey in what twenty twenty nineteen for work, and like you do need a VPN to get on lots of websites. Like government censoring government censoring of the internet is a thing. So for this guy now to uh, for our gangster for for Picard to be sidestepping the media to be sidestepping the government control of the internet and be going, I'm on YouTube and I'm going to tell you everything that I as a gangster have done related to the government. Turkish people are going like absolutely crazy about it. And I messaged one of my, one of my Turkish friends who I know from Moscow just to say, are they going, are people going crazy about it? And she's like, yes, yes, they are. <laughs> I'm like, great. Because this is just absolute just just crazy stuff where the only person that he isn't attacking is Erdogan himself, right? He's attacking all of the AKP party, giving out information that is uncorroborated, right? Because he's, he's a gangster. He can't go, oh, yeah, here's all of the information. You know, like, here's the, uh, here's the evidence that this politician asked me to whack this guy. Um, it's uncorroborated. So he's just saying all of this stuff. And Turkish people are like, we believe this gangster in Dubai more than we believe our own government at this point. Because everyone's always felt like this kind of stuff was happening anyway. Um, and it's crazy, Day. It's crazy. <laughs> and that that's kind of that. It still is going on right now. Which is really... Uh, like going into the Euros with this happening in your country must just be yeah bizarre, absolutely bizarre. It must be bizarre, yeah, because I mean, all the players that are based overseas are going to be getting all the kind of first-hand accounts, probably because they're all probably still in contact or have some connection to their homeland as well. But then there will be players in the squad who are still based in Turkey who'll be able to give them first-hand accounts and be like, "This is pretty crazy." But, um, and because it, because it's on YouTube as well, like you can watch it anyway, play, yeah. Turk, yeah, Turkish players are just around the world are going to know that this is going on and be connected to it, and it be, the media they can't censor it. Like uh, Soylu, the interior minister, has been on uh, on the chat shows and stuff like that, uh, trying to defend himself. He's saying things like, "These are people who sell child pornography, and you're going to believe them over over us." And people are like, yeah, kind it's like, of. Well, you know, potato, yeah, get... potato, gangster, yeah. politician. What's yeah, it, what yeah. What you want, especially yeah, if, if you've proven to be untrustworthy in the past. Yes. Can, you, so I, yeah, can I, I just start get an idea of um, of Picard? Is he like a remorseful, reformed gangster? Or is he like, I would still be doing this if I was still in Turkey. But I'm just, I'm pissed off. So now I'm just telling everyone my secrets. He sits there in his YouTube video with a big, uh, uh, an open shirt and a big gold chain. 
and he, he basically he sits there. He's got that. He's got a whiteboard behind him where he like writes down all of his little bits of information. And he's I think he's got a copy of like a biography of Bob Dylan or something on his desk as well. But one thing he has done actually is apologize to those academics that he threatened to shower in their blood. He said what he said to them was, you know, I've always been on the side of the government uh, in the past. And I've always been this kind of right wing guy. Like, these are my politics. This, this is what I believe. But they have used our nationalism to turn us against each other. Right. They have they have used nationalism to turn Turkish people against Turkish people. And what I'm doing now is opening all of this information that has been hidden from the Turkish people for years. This is now out in the public forum so that Turkish people can do with it what they will. Um, and, you know, it kind of makes him sound like a like he's been called a whistleblower, but like he's a whistleblower in that he murdered people for the government. And now they won't let him back into the country and they were mean to his wife. So he's decided to take them down. You know, he's, you know it's not like a, um, an Edward Snowden situation where Edward Snowden was like, I'm going to risk absolutely everything that I have in order to get this information out into the world. Right? Edward Snowden lost everything to reveal information that most people didn't even care about. Whereas for for this guy, he's like, yeah, I'm in my, you know, I'm in my mansion in Dubai and I've got all this money and, you know, what are they going to do? The, the only thing he hasn't done is go after Erdogan so far. Um, because I think he does like Erdogan. Like th- there are pictures of him and with Erdogan at a wedding. You know, when they're, they're walking together at a wedding, like talking like, these are all people who know each other. It's like um, the Godfather. It is like the Godfather. It's the Turkish Godfather on YouTube. And it's playing out <laughs> right now. Oh, yeah, screw you, Logan Paul. I want to watch Sadat Pekar bringing down the Turkish government. I would much rather watch that. Fuck Logan Paul. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want any competition. <laughs> English, lang- English language YouTube channels. Turkish, that's fine. We got That's, that's not in our, in our wheelhouse. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I really, I wish that that Sadat Pekar could go after Logan Paul as well while he's at it. But anyway, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's let's kind of move over to Italy now because you can you can imagine what's going on in in the Turkish camp these days, right? Like you can imagine they're getting ready for the Euros, and all they can talk about because all the country is talking about is this gangster, right? Like the Turkish players are going to be talking about this because everybody in the country is talking about it. Yeah. Italy is much more of like an, a standard politics situation. Um, they've had a, a new prime minister since uh, since February, I think. How much do you know about Italian politics? Um, the name Berlusconi comes to mind. How out of date is that? Oh, a little bit, but he is going to come in. Is so he? he was yeah. a pretty corrupt and scandalous fellow, wasn't he? He was indeed. And that is where this new prime minister... Uh, Mario Draghi comes in. So Italian politics is, well, it's kind of like Italy, I guess. It's famously corrupt and uh, famously unstable, for lack of a better word. They have a proportional uh, representation system in in Italy, which works in some fashions and uh, in some countries, like Germany. uh, Well, I was going to say it works in Germany, but it did elect the Nazi party. Um... Uh, it generally does not have a great record of, of working in Italy. Like, how much do you know about PR and proportional representation, that kind of thing? Next to nothing. 
Okay, great. So in the UK, we have a first-past-the-post voting system, right? Where you vote, uh, when we have an election, you vote for your uh, local member of parliament. Whichever guy wins the most votes is your representative and goes to parliament to represent you, right? So in my constituency, we have Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jacob Rees-Mogg is a horrible guy. Um, but because most of the people in my area vote for him, he is my representative, even though I voted for somebody completely different. Right. That's just how the system works. So in the UK, the Conservative Party are the government because they win the majority of these seats. You could you could win in the UK, even if you weren't the most popular party. You just won in the right locations um, in a proportional representation system. It's based on the percentage of vote that each party gets. So it would be like in the Green Party, for example, in the UK, the Green Party never does, never gets any representation in the parliament, the British parliament, despite the fact that like 5% of the population vote for them, right? But they just vote for them sporadically throughout the country and not in one location. They only ever do well in Brighton because... There's people in Brighton like the Green Party, but in like Newcastle, they don't get enough votes to ever get a representative. In a proportional representation system, you would say, okay, the Conservative Party get 45% of the vote, so they get 45% of the seats. Labour get 25% of the vote, so they get 25% of the seats. And it's like a literal game of percentages like that, which is not how it works in the UK at all. This is how it works in Italy. And that means you have loads of coalitions, right? Because no one ever gets more than 50% of the vote. Like, it just, it just doesn't happen. In, in the UK, it doesn't happen either. The Conservatives get, like, 40% of the vote if they're lucky, but they get 65% of the seats. In, in, so in Italy, in Italy, you have to form coalitions where you say, oh, we're the Labour Party and we're going to align with the Liberal Democrats to have a majority of seats and form a government like that. Um, but in Italy, this is remarkably unstable because they all hate each other. And it's been a real problem throughout Covid because you can't form a long term plan if your government is constantly collapsing and changing all the time. How do you respond to COVID and the economic problems that COVID brings if your government is always collapsing, right? So they do have a president who is elected, um, but the president functions differently to a president in America. It's kind of, he's more like a figurehead. Um, your prime minister is a very important person in Italy. They've got a president and a prime minister. And the president is kind of like the queen and does all the figurehead stuff. And the prime minister runs the parliament. And he's like, no, you're voting for this and you're voting for that. And he handles all that stuff. Um, but the coalitions couldn't choose a prime minister because they hate each other so much. So in February, the president of Italy went, I'm choosing the prime minister for God's sake. And he went for this guy called Mario Draghi. And Mario Draghi was the former uh, head of the European Central Bank. So he's an economist, very competent, very experienced. Um, he's often said that he rescued the euro in, in 2012, not the, not the euro tournament, the euro, the currency, um, after the economic crisis in 2008. You know, we, we, had, we spoke last time about the pigs, uh, Portugal, Italy, Greece and Spain, the yeah. pigs, um, who were like the countries, the European countries that almost destroyed Europe, uh, the European Union, because their economies crashed. 
Draghi was the guy who came in and is credited with saving those countries. Um, he came into the, the European Central Bank and went and decreased the interest le- interest rates on the EU's poor countries. This is very boring. But what it means is, is that the, the, the poor countries that needed money because of the economic crisis could borrow it because he lowered the interest rates. People like him. He's very popular in Italy because he saved Italy. He sounds like a smart guy. Yes. So he was appointed by, by Italy's president to form what we would kind of call a technocratic government. He, like, he, he doesn't belong to any political party, which is weird, because normally you have your coalition and the coalition chooses one of their guys to be the prime minister. But because the, the parties all hate each other, they couldn't choose anyone. So this guy has come in. He's not affiliated to any of them. And he's gone, all of you are going to listen to me. And because I'm experienced and I know what I'm doing and I don't like any of you, you don't have to worry that I'm biased. Right. So he's he's formed a coalition of all of these different parties who are temporarily putting their faith in him to sort this shit out. Right. And he's he's reasonably popular, but his coalition involves uh, the League, who were kind of like the Italian conservative party called the League. Um, He's got the center left party called the Democrats. He's got Berlusconi's party. Uh, They're all kind of backing this guy um, for the moment, mm-hmm. right? Basically, for the moment. And I say, I say that because, like, these, these parties are... It is a really diverse array of parties because Italy is a, is a super conservative country with a small C. Like, it's, it's the birthplace of fascism, Italy, right? Like, so it's worth bearing in mind that it is pretty conservative. They've, they've got... Um, they've had a... a an, what would you call it? An anti-violence against LGBT law, right? To, to condemn violence against LGBT people. This law has been stuck in the parliament for three years because the conservative parties just block it every time it tries to go through, right? And because the coalitions are dependent on unity between the parties, they can't pass the law because the Conservative Party will just go, no, we're not going to vote for that. And your coalition collapses. And then you need a new prime minister. And then you, so on and so forth. So it's kind of crazy. And Italy is kind of stuck between your uh, EU countries like Spain. Like Spain just reformed its constitution to allow same-sex marriage. Whereas countries like Poland have just created LGBT-free zones, right? To say, gay, well, we don't even want gay people in this area. Uh, and Italy kind of is, is kind of going between the two. But Draghi, this, this new prime minister, has come in and he wants to depoliticize everything because you've got things like the railways, like, uh, like the energy that's all nationalized. It's run by the government, but it's all split up between the different parties. One party takes control, appoints their guy in the railways and another guy appoints their guy in the power stations. And it's it's like... You get all of this money to sort the problem out and it all just gets spent politically. So what Draghi is coming to do is to swipe everything away. He's wiping the slate. He's getting rid of absolutely everyone because he's just managed to get $200 billion from Brussels, right, to to sort out Italy. And he's got, we've got $200 billion. And if I give it to you now, you're just going to fuck it. 
so he's he's changing absolutely everything um which sounds like hey you know it's a pretty it's a pretty good idea you know he knows what he's doing he's competent people trust him but the big political parties like the 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 league this conservative party basically want to get rid of him because he's going to get rid of all the advantages they have as one of the major parties like they want all of the stuff that they have they don't want to lose it so they're trying to do what they can to get rid of him whilst maintaining this coalition. It, it, it gets kind of complicated. The president is going to the president of Italy is going to retire next year, and so the League, this Conservative Party, are trying to push Draghi into becoming the next president. They're saying, "Oh, you're so good! You're so good! You should be the president." But if he becomes the president, then he can't do any of the stuff that he wants to do. Loses all of his power. Yeah. Yes, and he becomes like this figurehead guy. Like nominally, he can set the tone, but also they can, his his plans can be neutered, which kind of brings us to where everything is going wrong in Italy right now, because the League were always the most popular party, and and because they were the Conservative Party, they were often in opposition to the other political parties right you have your your left-wing governments and then the league is going fuck you you socialists we don't want you we want to be conservatives that don't like gay people but now they've got this big coalition which includes the left-wing people and the right-wing people and so they're all bickering amongst themselves but there's no one outside of them saying you're doing a bad job of handling coronavirus and as we've seen around the world the best, the most successful political parties now are the ones saying, end lockdown. Let everybody out. Right. Oh, you're you're taking away everyone's freedom. And so like this is happening around the world. So what we have seen in Italy is the return of everyone's favorite F type of politics. Fascism's back. Baby, <laughs> you can't keep a, a, a good fascist down for long. You you honestly can't. They're 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 they're, they're post fascists, which is kind of like saying you're post punk, which is you 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 had you had something strong and then you decided to mess with it, chopped his and balls the, off, and uh, yeah, and then the results don't you know. Yeah, yeah. So this is the Brothers of Italy party. The Brothers of Italy, in previous elections, they got like 4% of the vote. In 2018, they got 4% of the vote, which is like, again, like like the Green Party or something in the UK. Like, they got a few seats in Parliament, but it's not like that big of a deal. Um, But now... They've got this young, sexy, new leader of the party. She's called Giorgia Maloney. And Giorgia Maloney has come in and said... They're keeping you in your houses while they're letting illegal immigrants come into the country. The streets are empty of Italian and they're full of illegal immigrants. She's tried to get the Italian Navy to blockade the South to stop illegal immigrants coming in from from North Africa and from the Middle East. Syrian refugees, all this kind of thing. Um... And so she's gone from 4% of the vote to 20, in 2018 to now they're in second place with 19% of the vote in wow. like three years. In three years, they've gone from a minority party to now being to polling at the next election to being in second, which is like for fascism is a real scary situation for the world to be in. 
doesn't it always like do this though, where it comes out of nowhere or from the the quiet, and then just spikes, and suddenly it's everywhere, and suddenly it's really popular, but then just as quickly as it rises, it drops again. Maybe after it's caused all the damage it's going to cause, but yeah, I mean we we see it after every time there is a major shakeup in the world, like like this this happens, like after the last uh, the last financial crisis, you had the the you know Brexit happened. Um, then you know with Trump, Trump is part of that same thing as well. Like that, often it's a ticking, it's a ticking clock. Like you, you have a major disaster, and then you start the clock because it doesn't happen immediately. It's not like the economy collapses and then the next day the fascists are outside, right? Like the the conditions kind of boil, boil and bubble up. Um, but like COVID is a big cause of of this kind of stuff. Uh, we've seen it uh, like around the around the world because what. What has been documented is people will punish their governments for disasters they didn't cause, right? If we're in California and there's a wildfire, the voters will punish the government for the wildfire, even if they did a good job of handling it. They'll be like, there was a wildfire and everything sucked and that's your fault, even if they did a really good job of handling the crisis. And COVID is a good example of that as well. Right. Unless you're in the UK, where for some reason the government can kill 150,000 people and they get rewarded for it. Anyway, but what what Maloney has been able to do is this post fascist, because all of the Italian parties are grouped together trying to sort this out. She is able to have considerable influence by being outside of them and saying, what the hell are you doing? Right. There, there, there is no opposition party. And so the fascists have moved into the space of being the opposition party. And all those Italians who are stuck at home and thinking, I don't want to be stuck at home, are now listening to the fascists going, lockdown is bad and immigrants are bad. And I don't like either of those things. So I'm going to become a fascist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How to become an uh, idiot's guide to becoming a fascist. Yes, by by Giorgio Maloney, yeah. And that's kind of a scary thing. Like, again, this is the second most popular party. Like, that's like in the UK, the Labour Party is now a fascist party. You know, like, like you're not seeing Keir Starmer anymore. You're seeing, you know, Italian sexy Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> sexy Hitler. Every country needs one of those. No, they don't, Dave. That's the point. They definitely don't need that. But that's, again, that's that thing with, with, you know, in Brazil, it was the same thing with, with Bolsonaro as he kind of came to power. And as we'll see with the Copa America. Copa we'll, America. Will be the, that right-wing politics, that anti-lockdown politics has brought the Copa America into Brazil, despite the fact that they have the second most COVID deaths in the world, right? Yeah, and I heard as, that um, some countries were considering pulling out the tournament. Because, because it's, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And again, but as, we, as we've seen with Italy, Italy has been the COVID barometer for the rest of Europe, right? When things spike in Italy, you've got about three weeks before they spike in the rest of Europe as well. And so trying to tackle these things in Italy has been vital. And that's where, where, this, where, where Draghi, Prime Minister Mario Draghi, has come in. And you've got these post-fascists sliding in, slipping into the DMs of the Italian people going, hey, uh, you up? <laughs> do you want to re- do you want to re- do you want to rebel against lockdown and hate immigrants? And Italians like, 
you know, it's, it's 2 a.m., I'm tired and life has been shit for the last year. And, you know, I've, I've lost my job. Unemployment is, a, is a, a massive problem over there. And yeah, I kind of do want to hate immigrants and get out of the house. And it's, it's really dangerous. So with the Brazilian football team, like Ronaldinho was a big Bolsonaro supporter in the previous, like, like prominent Brazilians supported, supported Bolsonaro. And we might find that with this Italian, these Italian team as well. Like how many members of the Italian team are secretly post-fascists? Wouldn't that be something to know? Yeah. Well, 19% if the maths is anything to go by. Yeah. If they're a, rep- you know, a proportionate representation of their, of their yeah. compatriots. Yeah. And that's kind of weird, right? That's kind of a weird situation to be in. So you've got your choice in politics here, Dave. You can either go with your Gangnam-style Turkish gangsters. (laughs) Viral sensation. Yeah. Or your post-fascist Italians. Who do you want to win this opening match (laughs) at the Euros 2020? Well, I don't know. Both sides seem to have some some charismatic um, leaders... Uh, in place here with a uh, with your Draghi and uh, your your what's it, what did you say his name was Pika Pikachu what's his name <laughs> Sadat Pikachu yeah Sadat yeah. Pikachu yeah but yeah the I mean when you were talking about um, a prime minister being put in place who is not affiliated with any party I was like that sounds like a great idea why doesn't yes. anyone do that yes but then yeah. I was also thinking like also this is not only is this human beings this is also po- politicians and and uh businessmen and and power so it's going to be corrupt in some way so if the first time this they have this draggy person in as a prime minister they go that was great we'll, we'll keep doing that throughout the history of italian government it'll only be a matter of time before someone slips in who secretly is affiliated with one of these with these parties and is working sort of underhandedly to to screw screw the system which is designed to be fair and and equal but as um uh yeah, this this kind of all this political um, upheaval always makes me depressed. So it leads me to a place of always thinking like humans, just, we just fuck everything that's given to us. And any great idea that's designed to improve things will eventually be corrupted and polluted by human nature. And no, yeah. amount, no amount of good intentions will ever outweigh the amount of ill intentions. Yeah, I would say these these two especially are ones to keep an eye on. Like, I, I looked into Switzerland as well, and Switzerland just pulled out of a major deal with the EU that, like, some people are saying, oh, it's like Swiss Brexit, and the Swiss are like, no, it's not, shut up. <laughs> like, like it, 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 is, it is relatively interesting, but how much of an effect is it likely to have on the World Cup? I'm not sure, on the Euro, sorry? I'm not sure. Well, but, sorry, but with, yeah, but with what we saw with the England friendlies, in the last few days, um, the players took took the knee to, to in support of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and there were boos around the stadium, and there were also applause around the stadium, and people chose not to talk about the applause and to focus on the fact that there was booing. So, anyway, that act of political statement by those players, and the response from their crowd has the chance to be massively exaggerated when the game is playing being played in Rome and 19% of the voters are fascists. Anti-lockdown fascists. During coronavirus, 
in Rome on an international stage. Yeah, and like, Italy if, has if, had problems with, with racism and, and yes. crowd trouble in, in that regard in the past. Yes, and I'm not sure if we're likely to see anything from Turkey, but you never know. So I would say keep your eye out. Keep your eye on Italy to see if anything comes up. That's You, you can predict the winner. I'm going to predict the protest. My money's on Italy. Fascists. <laughs> You got always put your money on the fascists. They're very predictable. You've got to. You know, there's, there's one thing about the fascists. Historically, not very successful, but they're kind of like cockroaches. You can literally nuke them and they keep coming back. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, bloody fascists. <laughs> they're everywhere. But okay, so I've I've digested everything you've said, and in terms of uh, who. Which team may be more affected by the political goings on in their countries? It seems like Italy's um, upheaval and and change in politics. It it seems way more dramatic and influential on on their entire people. And as you've said, it's led to a, a rise in in the in the fascist fascist political movement. Um, so, I think that should have a. I would expect to have a great, massive effect on on the players uh, psychologically, at least in terms of what they're discussing, and it may cause divide political divides among the players, um, especially the ones who live and work abroad versus the ones who live mm-hmm. and work in Italy. The mm-hmm. ones who live and work abroad might be like, well, you know, whatever. Can you, you tone down your fascism, please? <laughs> yeah, because I, you know, I'm an immigrant. I I I play yeah. in London or I play in wherever. Um, whereas with Turkey, it seems like what is affecting them politically is a YouTuber who is, and if, and in terms of uh, the, the lifespan of things that go viral, this could be something that's huge right now and everyone's talking about it and maybe some people are taking it seriously and some people are laughing at it going, isn't it hilarious that our country is being shook by an old gangster in Dubai on YouTube? <laughs> this time... Yes. Next, yeah. Yes. It's insane. <laughs> So yeah. this time next year, Turkey might be like, "Oh, do you remember that guy? That what? That was crazy. That was fun for that took a, took our minds off COVID for a few months. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, in a year's time, Draghi and the and the, and the president and all the this coalition government is still going to be a thing, and it's still going to mm-hmm. be affecting the the day to day lives of Italians. So, I, I think Turkey may find it easier to shrug off what's going on at home than easier than Italy will. Yeah, generally, I think Charlie bit my finger is a little bit easier to overcome than uh, than <laughs> well, the return Charlie of bit the my finger is, is persevered. I mean, that's that's true. Somebody, Charlie, somebody, you're a that. fascist. <laughs> so you can get that on a t-shirt. Someone can. Um, it's possible for, to buy the original um, progenitors of memes. Yeah, yeah the yeah. NFTs. Yeah. So someone bought yeah. the Charlie bit my finger thing recently for like half a million pounds yeah. or something. And yeah. there are other, the girl looking back at the camera and there's a fire in the background, yeah. the disaster girl meme, that's been bought for, for thousands yeah. and thousands of pounds. Unbelievable, Jeff. Unbelievable, Jeff. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Do you reckon we can get Chris Kamara on here? He, he, <laughs> he does anything that he's offered, so I, I think there's a chance. I want, to get, I want to get a politician to guest or I want to get a football player to guest. See if you can that's get your local constituent. Jacob Rees-Mogg? Yeah. So I could spit at him. You could question time his ass. Yeah. Do you know, uh, I sent him two letters last month. Last month? I thought you were going to say last year. No, last month. No, last month. I sent him two letters, both about Palestine. 
Um, and he didn't respond. Not yet. Give him, I'm sure he's busy. He's <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's busy with something. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this first episode on the opening day of the Euros, uh, Euro 2020. I'm excited for this first match. It's we're gonna we're gonna be together to watch this match, Dave. I'm I'm coming down to you so we can watch it together. That's exciting as well. Hell yeah. That'd be yeah. Late. Yeah, I'll try I'll try my best. <laughs> You've said before it's gonna be between Italy and Turkey for who for who tops the group, in your prediction. Yeah. Who's it gonna be? Um in Italy, I will go for Italy because I think that as I've predicted, even if the first game is a draw, in the other two games, um, I think Italy and Turkey will probably win both. And But I think Italy will score more goals. So it might come down to Italy going through a head-on goal difference. There's your prediction, people. Group A, Italy going through first, possibly on goal difference. Join us next time for Group B. Uh, we're going to possibly have seen one of the group b matches before we record definitely will have seen some of group d but group b we've got denmark finland belgium russia there's gonna be a there's gonna be a lot to talk about there so tune in next time bye solid sign off thanks (laughs)